We have to communicate not just a good example. We need to communicate words. Faith does not come by seeing only. It comes by hearing. You're listening to Colossians, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Thank you, Mackenzie. We gave her the hardest text ever with all of the names to pronounce. I think that was the most difficult one. Well, welcome this morning. Uh, We are again um, beginning a new chapter in our church. And yet, as we meet here at this new location, we're also closing another chapter, literally the fourth and final chapter of the book of Colossians. Hasn't it been a fantastic study? Those of you who are, uh, have been with us, all right, well, I thought it's been a great study. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've loved it. And um, the theme has been Lord of all. And we've been learning about the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is Lord of all and how that impacts all things, including our identity. In other words, we've learned that our identity is not rooted in what we do, but who we are in Christ. We're now part of his body. That means that we're no longer independent. That means the idea of being isolated should have caused within us um, a a big disconnect and a big longing and a hoping to come back together. Um, We are not independent. We're a part of a community. And that means we're also a part of God's mission here on earth. So all of us collectively are participants in the mission of God in his glorious gospel. And if there's ever been a time that I've been learning that Jesus is Lord of all, it's been in the last few weeks. Many of you have um, heard the news that our family did did get exposed to COVID-19. Uh, and of several weeks back, um, we just got our test results. Um, you can continue to pray. Jen did um, test positive and I tested negative. Um, it's because I have a, a very strong physique. Um, clearly, I am very healthy now. Um, but but, but serious, um, we, we do continue to um, appreciate your prayers. Um, we are fully recovered. She's doing great. The kids are doing great. Um, but thank you for your continued prayers. There's many others in the country that are contracting and having complications and issues. So um, continue to pray for our fellowship. But this has been a moment where we've had to either say he's Lord and sovereign, we trust that, even with a diagnosis or waiting for results, or we don't trust that. And so we as a family have been put to the test. And I can say confidently that when we rest in the finished work of Christ on our behalf, and we truly theologically put our faith in the sovereign will of God, then we know that nothing's going to come to us that isn't a part of his plan, right? So we have been able to experience, not on the pages of a theological book, but we have been, from the from the truth of Scripture, in experience, we've been able to live out um, the, the fact that God is sovereign, and, and it's just been an awesome uh, few weeks, even as the, it's been difficult. But as we turn our attention to Colossians, we're closing this um, incredible book, and we've noticed that all of Paul's letters begin with him addressing his audience, and he would often would call them the saints in Christ Jesus or the church plural. And then he would basically begin his letters with these amazing blessings that we have in Christ. And he would root his correspondence to the church in the doctrinal and theological truth of who God is and thus who we are. And that's really where it flows from. We start with who God is, thus we understand who we are. And then as Paul's letters would go on, he would get more and more practical the further that he went in his letters. And then at the very end of his letters, he almost seemed to wrap up his exhortations and then started greeting individual people. You, you could say, there's a phrase we use today currently. I don't use it because I'm too old to use it. But there's a phrase we use. The phrase is shout out. Okay, And that, that is that we're going to kind of give a shout out to our friends or people that we love. And you could almost say that the end of Paul's letters are his shout outs. It's almost, you can feel like his time is short and there's much work ahead. And so he starts throwing out name after name after name of the people that he appreciates, and he almost tries to squeeze in as many as possible, like someone at the award ceremony when the music goes up and it's about to go to commercial and they have the award and they go back to the microphone really quick, just say, oh yeah, I forgot about my mom. (laughs) And they just try to give that last person a little shout out. So Paul's life in ministry 
what I want us to understand as we open this up today is that it, it did not happen. His ministry did not happen without people, real people. So when Paul mentions all of these names, and we do our best to not mispronounce them, let's remember these are real people whom Paul had a real relationship with. I would say this, that people matter. There is no um, church with a membership of one person, right? We are all collectively a part of the body of Christ. There are no private citizens in the kingdom of heaven. So you and I are not called to follow Jesus alone, to serve Jesus alone. We need one another. In fact, when you read Romans 12, 5, um, my favorite pastor, Pastor Carl Dixon, always says from that verse that we belong to one another, Romans 12, 5. We are more interconnected and in need of one another in our lives than we could ever realize. And as we close this series today, starting next Sunday, we're going to do a series, a very special five-part series on this idea of being together. What does the church gathering really mean? What does it mean theologically? And we're going to do kind of a mini-series in 1 Corinthians. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians 11 through 15 um, for five weeks, starting next week in a series called Together. Very excited about that. But today, we're going to break this section down into two big sections. So if you're taking note, we'll put the outline on the screen. We're going to look at it this way. We're going to talk about missional participation in verses 2 through 6, and then we're going to look at missional people, verses 7 through 18. Now, what I'm going to do just to keep you active and sharp this morning is we're going to switch those around. So we're going to begin this morning by going backwards. We're going to start with the missional people, and then as a closing application, we'll go back to verse 2 and look at that first point, the missional participation. Now, as you notice from this outline, we're going to use a phrase, missional. And sometimes this phrase has been, well, it's been misused uh, or it's been misunderstood. So some people would say, well, missional means that you hang out with guys with beards and have cigars. And I would say, amen. Um, other guys would say, that's not what missional means at all. And I would say, you're right. That's not what it means. When we say missional, what do we mean? It means that we are committed to the Great Commission. Now, just here, those of you who are at home won't be able to do this. But those of you who are here, raise your hand if, you've, if you have heard of the Great Commission. Let me see your hands go up for a minute. All right, great. So pretty much the kids are like, yeah, me too. All right, so we've heard of the Great Commission. That is a good thing. If you haven't, though, let me introduce you. Matthew 28 on the screen, verses 18 through 20, um, pretty much the last words of Jesus before ascending. He said, and uh, it says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. What a great promise. I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, what Jesus is saying can really be summarized in three words. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to disciple the nations. That is really, if you were to distill it down into three words, he's saying disciple the nations. So people who are missional are those who see what I call the great task unfinished. They look at the globe, and they don't turn the globe around and go, that's where I want to visit one day because I want to take a vacation there. They spin the globe, and they say, that place has not yet had access to the gospel, and that has not yet been discipled. And I want to see, and I want to pray that God would send people there, maybe even me, um, and, and overlook my own comfort, ease, and dreams being fulfilled, but see the great commission fulfilled. So, um, that is what it means to be missional, just so we're clear uh, on that definition. So with that in mind, let's look at missional people and look again with me at verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your heart. So we're going to look at some names. The first name is Tychicus, and, and we need to know this about him. He was sent with this letter originally to the Colossian church. So this is the one who's bearing the letter itself. Um, now notice that Paul sent him with the letter for two reasons. It's right there in verse 7. He says, first, for the church to know what was happening with Paul. 
So it was kind of a, an informational news update. They didn't have texting back then. It wasn't like you could just say, hey, let me Marco Polo you. Let me, let me send a tweet. Let me text you. Let me email you. So he had to bring this correspondence to inform them. But secondly, Paul says, I'm sending him also that he may encourage your hearts. So church, Tychicus is a great example of a missionary and how missionaries are bringing a message to the churches they're communicating to. Uh, they inform the church, and they encourage the church. So notice that Paul says that Tychicus is three things. Did you catch it? He says he is, number one, a beloved brother. Number two, he's a faithful minister. And number three, he's a fellow servant. That first word, beloved brother, um, is the word beloved. It's mentioned nine times um, and the, well, it's mentioned much more than that, but the first nine times that that word is mentioned in our New Testament, beloved, it's always used of the Father speaking of the Son. And, and so the idea here is this word agape, meaning that Tychicus is, as a Christian, a recipient of the Father's love, divine sacrificial love. Uh, but he's also a beloved brother. So he's a brother alongside us in the love of Christ. Notice, secondly, though, he's a faithful minister. He's a faithful minister. Remember, that's the scoreboard that we focus on. You and I want to hear Jesus say, not well done, good and successful servant. We want Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so whether we have a large ministry, whether we have a small ministry, whether we have a large family, or we have had a really tough time getting pregnant and we still can't seem to get pregnant, uh, whether our marriage you know, has been over 10 years or 10 weeks. We are to be faithful. Whether in our ministry people listen to us or they reject us. Whether everything we do for the Lord is met with difficulty and disappointment or it's met with favor or blessing, we're just simply to be faithful. And I want to hear those words. I know you want to hear those words. When we see Jesus face to face at the Bema seat, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, not only that, but Tychicus was a fellow servant. In other words, he was in the trenches with Paul. He was doing the real hard work of ministry. And there's nothing like knowing someone else is doing the same kind of work you're doing around the world or in the context of church. You can say, man, you're a fellow servant, and I know what it's like to be in the trenches with you. John Calvin said this. He said, the highest honor in the church is not leadership, but it's service. And it's such an honor to be in a ministry service to the church. Now, notice that Paul sent Tychicus with a man named Onesimus. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, same phrase, same idea, he said, who is one of you? They will tell you of everything that has taken place. Now, we don't have time to go into it today, but Onesimus has an amazing story. And to truly understand it, you have to turn to the book of Philemon. So you need to do that later. That's your homework this weekend. Uh, go read the entire book of Philemon. You can say, I read a book this weekend, an entire book. Uh, it's only about 25 verses, so you'll get through it in one chapter. But let me just update you. Last week, we talked about slaves in the Roman Empire. And Onesimus was a slave. And he had escaped from his master. And his master's name was Philemon. Philemon was a believer. He was a Christ follower, but at the time of his escape, Onesimus is believed to be an unbeliever. And so he ran away as an unbeliever and was rebelling against his master. Now, the, the punishment for that was typically, I don't know, death. So if you were to run away, the slave master had every right to put you to death. But as Onesimus makes it to Rome, he meets this outspoken Christian by the name of Paul. And Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. And so on one occasion, you can just imagine, Paul and Onesimus are talking, and Onesimus begins sharing his testimony about being an unbeliever, and I ran away from my master Philemon, and Paul says, wait a minute, Philemon who? <laughs> Philemon, I think I know a Philemon. And he begins to tell Onesimus that I know your master. So this may have been an awkward exchange, we're not sure, but Paul knew Philemon, his master, and he sent the letter that we call Colossians, with Tychicus and Onesimus back to Colossae. Philemon would have been there with the church listening to the words, and he would have heard Onesimus, and of course, he would have understood that Onesimus had come to Christ. Now, again, a slave running away from a master would have been punished by death, but knowing that, Paul sends a letter 
to Onesimus' master Philemon personally. It's a personal letter, and we call that our book of Philemon. Now, listen really quickly to this cheerful attitude from Philemon chapter 1, verse 8. He says this. He says, Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Like, I'm bold enough to say you need to receive him and not hurt him. He says, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. In other words, I wasn't his actual dad, but I was uh, the one who gave birth to him, so to speak, spiritually by leading him to Christ. And then he says this in verse 11 of Philemon, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Now, Paul is being playful here with his words. Uh, The reason is because the name Onesimus means useful. So Paul is saying this. He's saying, almost in a comedy way, he's saying, hey, when you had useful, he really wasn't useful. But now that you lost useful, he really will be useful because he's a believer. So he's kind of having fun as he writes to Philemon. And so he says, I'm sending back to you, him back to you, I'm sending you my very heart, and I'm praying that you'll receive him back to you um, as a brother. And so incredible backstory, and, and this really, again, puts the, the meat of application in the, the real-life people who are hearing this in Colossae. They were challenged as masters and slaves to live out the gospel. Well, let's look at the next three, guys. We have Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. Notice verse 10. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Uh, let's begin with him. We, we learn from Acts 20, verse 4, that Aristarchus was a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And he was um, often Paul's travel companion. Uh, you meet him in the Ephesian mob in Acts chapter 19, and later in Acts chapter 27 when Paul set sail for Rome after being imprisoned by Rome. And so a lot of scholars, I don't know if this is true, but a lot of scholars believe or suggest that Aristarchus may have made himself Paul's slave so he could travel with him. We don't know if that's true, but he was always kind of right alongside Paul, even in the thick of it. Well, then we have Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. This is also known as John Mark. If you're writing in your Bibles, just write a little note, John Mark. John Mark was probably led to Christ by Peter. Um, He is the cousin of Barnabas. Now, when Paul and Barnabas first set out on their missionary, their first missionary journey, they take John Mark with them. It's always good to go with a band of people when you go on um, church planting endeavors. And so they bring John Mark with them as kind of an assistant to kind of help them out. Um, He's the assistant to the missionary, just so we're clear. So um, when things started getting tough, John Mark basically heads home. He, he leaves and goes back home. And why he leaves is not told to us in Scripture. But if you've ever been involved in global missions, then you probably can identify a little bit with why John Mark left. Global missions is an extremely, an extraordinarily difficult task. There's, there's dangerous travel. There are sleepless nights. There's, there's new customs to learn. There's new food to enjoy or not enjoy. There are new cultures to navigate. And, of course, new languages that you seek to not only just learn but try to perfect. And, and so the, the missionary that is sent out within the first year to first five years, are the loneliness and the despair and the disappointment are abounding. So maybe it was a culmination of all of these factors along with some pervasive homesickness that we all, we all in, uh, like, um, deal with that may have led John Mark to abandon his mission and go home. We're not sure. But Paul and Barnabas later are ready to go again on a missionary trip. And Barnabas says, okay, let's bring John Mark. And Paul says, no, we're not bringing him. Maybe for obvious reasons. We're not bringing him this time. Um, we need to bring Titus. And so at that point, Barnabas uh, ends up separating from Paul in ministry, and we actually don't hear about Barnabas anymore after that in the entire New Testament. However, later, Paul says this about Mark on the screen, 2 Timothy 4, 11. He says, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. This is such an encouraging final note for the life of John Mark. This encourages me that Paul invites someone who in the past may have failed in ministry. 
but there's never, um, uh, you know, there's always a second chance. Paul exemplified grace to John Mark. Well, we mentioned Aristarchus, we mentioned Mark, and then we come to this third guy, Justice. In verse 11, Paul says, and Jesus, who is called Justice, okay? Now, <laughs> as I was studying this, I just, I, it, it made me laugh a little bit. Just imagine in the first century, your name is Jesus, and you're a part of the church. And so you arrive to the church gathering, and someone says, hey, Jesus is here. And everyone turns around, he's back. Now, that would have been a very awkward name to have in the first century. So no wonder he goes by justice. <laughs> um, we know he's a Jew. He's a great comfort um, to Paul. Paul says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. In other words, these are the men of the circumcision um, that's not a techno band name. That means they are from Jewish descent. These are, these are fellow Jews who have received Christ, and they're a great comfort to Paul. Well, then we have Epaphras. Notice verse 12. It says, And Epaphras, who is one of you, he's a member of the church in Colossae, he's a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, for I bear him witness that he's worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, we, we looked at Epaphras when we opened this book, but verse 12 sounds like that guy's a pastor. When you read that again, you go, he's struggling on your behalf in prayer and praying that you stand mature and fully assured. That's the work of a pastor, and that's what Epaphras was. He was the man who founded the church in Colossae. He was their pastor, but he was also traveling to the cities of Hierapolis and Laodicea. Remember, the Lycus River Valley had those three sister cities together. And so he was a hardworking servant. He wrestled in prayer for the churches. And his prayer for them, as is our pastoral prayer for our church, for you, is that we would see the church standing mature and fully assured in the will of God. That is a great pastoral prayer. Well, then he mentions Luke and Demas. Now, these guys couldn't be on either further end of the spectrum. Look first with me at Luke. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Now, we know Luke from his gospel. This is that same Luke who, uh, who wrote Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. Luke, we know, was a physician. Luke was a Gentile. Luke may have been the only Gentile writer in the Bible. Um, he meets up with Paul in Troas and ends up staying with him until the very end of his life. He's one of those friends that stays with you no matter what to the very end. Uh, even though he was a physician, maybe he was more well-off, maybe he was affluent, we know he was brilliant, but he still stayed uh, with Paul. So we have him trading the things of this world to do ministry and to stay with Paul to the end. And then on the, like his counterpart, we have Demas. He says, Demas also greets you. Now, nothing is positively said about Demas here, only that he greets the Colossian churches, and that just means that um, they knew him. Um, in Philemon verse 24, he's actually grouped there among Paul's fellow laborers. But the last mention of Demas is the last writing we have of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And on the screen, notice what Paul says about Demas, the man who was with him in ministry, but now at the end of Paul's life, he says this in verse 9 and 10. He says, do your best to come to me soon, Timothy, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I mean, what a contrast between Luke and Demas. Luke was with Paul as he writes that to Timothy, even as Demas has deserted him. He says, Demas loved this present world. That word loved is that word agape. He had agape for the world. He loved the ways of the world, the mindset of the world, the philosophies of the world, the arguments of the world, the atheism, the lust, the hedonism, the pleasure, the materialism, the greed, the ambition, the politics that are all wrapped up in the things of this world. Now, I want to exhort you as a pastor, don't be a lover of this present world. You and I, as we've studied this book, we realize we have been delivered from it, right? We've been set free from the world, and we're hated by the world. 
Why would we ever desert ministry to pursue something that we are dead to? Uh, John wrote this to his audience in 1 John 2. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Do you see those two paths? The, the one who desires the things of this world, you will pass away. If you're here today or you're watching live and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ based on his finished work, if you're trying to attain heaven through your good works or to reject the claims of Christ altogether and just live it on up here in this world, you're sadly mistaken. And this world and its desires is passing away. You will one day pass away and you'll stand before the judgment seat of God. And yet, Christ has come. And those who are in the church are hated by the world. We've been delivered from the world. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And so, man, such a difference between Luke and Demas. Well, then we get two more people. We have Nympha and Archippus. Look at verse 15. Paul says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over whether Nympha was a masculine or feminine voice. Um, was she a male or a female? Well, we don't know. Um, I'm just going to say she's a woman, all right? So we don't really need to argue that. The important thing is that the church met in Nympha's house. Um, Paul says also that this letter needs to be read in Laodicea. He says, um, I want to greet you um, in the church in your house. And when this letter is read at that lo location, which we have to realize, like the church didn't necessarily um, meet in special buildings until the third century. And so up until this point, as Paul is writing this letter, church was, the church was meeting in homes around the city, usually in various leaders' homes. Um, the first century church met in homes in Jerusalem and in Solomon's Colonnade, which is, was a public building, which is kind of why I love the fact that we meet here. We meet in a public building, and then we also meet in one another's homes. Um, now, Paul says, though, that this letter, once it's done being read here, it needs to be sent to the church um, that meets in Laodicea. Um, remember, that was that city nearby. But then he says, and read the letter that I wrote them. We don't have that letter. Uh, we don't have it in our canon of Scripture. We do know later in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus does write to seven churches, and Laodicea is one of them. Read it in Revelation 3. It's not a great thing that he has to say, not a lot to commend that church for. A lot of people say that we today in Western culture are the church of Laodicea, and, and I can't disagree with that. You might want to go read Revelation 3. Pretty powerful. So from there... Um, from that point on, the letter pretty much ends, except for one more thought that Paul has. One more name, one more shout out, and it's on this final name I want us to spend just a minute. He says in verse 17, And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, we don't know what Archippus' ministry was, but you could picture him in the audience listening as this letter is being read out loud. And he's kind of sitting there, and all of a sudden his name is mentioned. He perks his head up and pays attention. Now, notice that Paul didn't speak to Archippus directly. He didn't send him his own correspondence. He wrote to the church and wanted the church to address Archippus publicly. He, in other words, he wanted to communicate to him through the public declaration to the church. This exhortation needed to be in front of the body. He needed to hear them challenge him to fulfill the ministry that God had for him. One person said this, many an Archippus is sluggish because the Colossians are silent. You know, it doesn't happen where you're by yourself and you just sense this call to ministry and you just end up doing things for, for Christ. It's totally divorced from the recognition, from the, the validation of the local church. In other words, if you're here today or you're watching, you think, I might be called to ministry. That doesn't just happen isolated. That happens in the context of our church community as you are um, ultimately challenged by the church to fulfill that ministry. We see Archippus mentioned in Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. 
And a lot of people think maybe he's Philemon's son. We don't know. But consider Paul's words to him just for a minute. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. God has given you a ministry. Now you need to fulfill it. David Gusick puts these ideas in a, in a good perspective. Here's what he says on the screen. He says, first, God gives ministry to his people. And true ministry is received in the Lord. Ministry may be left unfulfilled. One must take heed to their ministry in order for it to be fulfilled. And we should encourage others to fulfill their ministry. So what is the ministry that you have received in the Lord? Are you taking heed to it? Are you fulfilling it? Some of us are waiting for that moment for the pastors to invite us to serve or for the need to arise, but we know that God has called us. Are we fulfilling our ministry? I remember when I was a youth pastor, I was praying about our future. And uh, I went out to City Island in Sarasota. You guys know Island Park. And I just sat down on one of the benches there, and I started praying. And I just remember looking out at the water, being full of fear and, and wondering with anxiety, like, man, could God lead me to not just be a youth pastor, but be a, a lead pastor to plant a church? If I knew it was going to be multiple churches, I probably would have gone jet skiing that day instead. But, um, man, just an incredible moment. And I just remember God stirring my heart as I had my head in the Bible, um, just this assurance from the book of Joshua to fear not, that he's commanding us to be strong and courageous. So you may not be a pastor, you may not be a church planter, but God has absolutely given us in the church ministry to fulfill. Many people don't know this little trivia. When we started... This church, Shoreline, we began studying Colossians on Sunday nights. Is there anyone here? I know there's a few of you. Raise your hand. Were you with us at the little warehouse in Sarasota? There's a few of us. Yeah, I think one or two. Yeah, just a couple of us who were there. Everyone else is watching online. Uh, but we, we were there um, studying the book of Colossians, and we had a final message before we met at the YMCA. And I looked over my notes um, just to anticipate today's sermon, and um, we had about I don't know, 30, 40 people. And um, I looked at my notes this week, and I decided to pull this from my notes to share this again. Because this was the, this is five years ago. This is from 2014. So I'll put it on the screen. Here's what I said back then. I said, when I think about the task ahead, I think about setup and teardown and media and worship and kids ministry and greeting and community groups and discipling new believers and evangelism and outreach and loving and serving our community in tangible ways. And I believe some amazing ministry is about to happen. The question is, are you taking heed to the ministry that you have received in the Lord to fulfill it? In a new church, there are so many blank places on the page that I am so excited to watch God fill in, using you and I for his glory. It's probably bad grammar there, but, but you have to step up and trust that he will be with you. And here we are five years into our church plant um, and we're in this new facility, but listen, there are still a lot of blank spaces. There are still, there's still much to do. The great task of reaching and discipling the nations is still unfinished. And so we're all to be involved in participating in the greater mission, not just the mission of Shoreline, the greater mission of Jesus Christ. And that includes being involved here in our home church, as well as being involved in church planting globally. So, to that end, here's how we're going to apply the passage. Usually we study a passage, then bring application. The application today is going to be verses 2 through 6, okay? So we're going to not, uh, note or jot down five um, points for us from these verses. These verses inform us on what missional participation looks like. And I don't want us to consider looking back the last five years of Shoreline. I want us to look ahead at the next five years. What does Christ-centered mission look like for all of us over the next five years? So number one, if you're taking note, number one, prayer is our number one priority. Paul says in verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Did you catch that? Three aspects. Continue steadfastly. Be watchful and be thankful. So with everything in our Christian lives, but in, especially in our witness of the gospel to the ends of the earth, prayer is the key. You and I would be, I would say, I'd, get, I'd take it this far, we'd be in sin if we just go out in our own strength or go out in our own power 
and say, I'm just going to do this for Christ. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it. Remember those guys that tried to replicate Paul's ministry in the first century and the demons came and started like abusing them? They're like, you know, I've heard of Paul. I haven't heard of you. I don't want to ever attempt anything in my own strength. The end result is always spiritual defeat. John Piper said this. He said, one of the reasons we feel so weak in our prayer lives is that we've tried to make a domestic intercom out of a wartime walkie-talkie. He says this, prayer is not designed as an intercom between us and God to serve the domestic comforts of the saints. No, it's the link between active soldiers and their command headquarters with its unlimited firepower and air cover and strategic wisdom. Isn't that awesome? Is that how we pray? Do we pray fervent prayers that God and only God can answer? Prayer is something that we should continue steadfastly, being watchful, and being thankful. Thanksgiving is something we don't relegate to November, but it should be a part of our prayer life, a part of our daily life. In our desire to reach Bradenton and Lakewood Ranch and Sarasota with the gospel, have we made prayer the same priority that Paul made it? Well, prayer is our number one priority. Number two, if you're taking note, um, this would be our second idea here of Christ-centered or gospel-centered mission, and that is that we pursue the open doors. Look at verse 3. He says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. So remember, Paul is asking for prayer. Remember where he's at. He is asking for an open door for the word. Remember, he's in house arrest. He's been preaching Christ, and he's been told, you can't do that. He continues to preach Christ, and then he's arrested. He appeals to Caesar. Um, He's in this house quarantine situation, but he's praying that God would allow situations to develop that would allow the gospel to be preached. Now, I love this, that Paul says, pray for us that God would open the door and that we would pursue it. Church, we have to pray for open doors and then pursue them. We are not to be like this guy where we are trying to kick down the doors that are not open to us. We're just, I'm going to bust the door down. Often in our desire to preach Christ, um, we want to push doors open that Christ does not open. But when God does open a door, it may surprise us. We need to pursue that and knock on those doors. Um, there are certainly huge open doors in our partnership here with Freedom Elementary. And just speaking to Dr. Grimes, the principal, there are needs within this community. Uh, there are very practical, tangible needs, and of course, there are spiritual needs. There are students who are going to need encouragement and parents who are going to need counseling. In this new location, there's tens of thousands of people that drive by each and every Sunday who are dead in their sins, who are separated from God. And now we have a much more open door to share the good news with them. Sometimes when we pray for open doors, that means closing doors that don't point others to the gospel. It means saying, you know what, I'm not going to try to pursue this other door. I'm going to leave that door shut. A man by the name of Henry Martin was a, a brilliant student at Cambridge University. And when he graduated, he decided to reject several opportunities that were open to him. He had several open doors that were lucrative, and he said, I'm not going to pursue those. Instead, I'm going to go overseas to the mission field. And here's what he prayed. He prayed this prayer on the screen. He said, here I am, Lord. Send me to the ends of the earth. Send me to the rough, the savage pagans of the wilderness. Send me from all that is called comfort in earth. Send me even to death itself, if it be, but in thy service and in thy kingdom. And then he packed his bags, and he went to India and then to Persia and was used mightily of God because he prayed and he pursued the open doors by saying no to some of the doors that brought comfort to him. So we need to pursue the open doors as a Christian, as a church. Number three, we need to proclaim truth plainly. Look at verse four. Paul says, Pray for me that I may make it clear, the mystery of Christ, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, I would argue that the two most important qualities of a gospel presentation are accuracy and clarity, okay? In other words, it's not hype, it's not excitement, it's accuracy and it's clarity. So when we're unclear, or worse, when we're incorrect, 
what a grave disservice we do to the hearer. And this is one of the reasons we are unapologetically committed to the systematic exposition of all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation here at Shoreline. I want to say this publicly so it's, it's, it's recorded so that you hear this and know this. And we've said it often, but you will always have a church that is overseen by pastors who see it as our highest priority to preach the word in season and out of season, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with complete patience and teaching. We know that the next part of that verse says, for the time has come and and is upon us when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We will always have a church leadership that is dedicated to gospel proclamation. And so we pray that in our preaching, all of us, not just the pastors, that, that in our gospel witness, we speak clearly. We proclaim truth plainly. Listen, when you go to share the gospel, you don't need to dress it up as if it's something embarrassing that needs your help, making it a little a little more attractive, a little more beautiful. Let me dress it up to make it a little more maybe desirable to the things of this world. Listen, no. The gospel does not need better PR, doesn't need marketing. Church, the number one reason that witnessing does not happen, did you know the number one reason that we don't share the gospel? It's not what you would expect. If we were to take a survey right now of those of us here or watching online, we would probably say, what's the number one reason people don't witness? And we would say probably fear. Maybe it's the fear of rejection, the fear of, of someone um, maybe losing their comfort with their friendships. Maybe it's a lack of funds. We don't have money to go to the ends of the earth. Maybe it's other desires that keep the gospel grounded. Well, I would say none of that is the main reason that the gospel um, witnessing doesn't happen. I believe that it's a failure to truly believe Romans 1.16. In other words, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If we really believe that, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, then we would have no fear of being rejected. We would have no fear that we won't have the words or the answers to tough questions because it's not about convincing people to come into the kingdom. It's about faith coming by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we don't need to say, I don't have any resources or, man, I need to make it more relevant to the culture. Let me change the gospel and tailor it to make it palatable to dead human hearts. No, we simply need to trust that God's power accompanies the preaching of God's gospel to everyone who believes, both Jew and Greek. So to that end, we should just simply proclaim truth plainly. Number four. I didn't get any amens on that, so I'm disappointed. But uh, number four, (laughs) I don't need them. It's fine. Prepare for perspective moments. Paul says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the times. In other words, this isn't just mission theory. I've spoken to lots of people who know the language of church planting, but have never planted a new work. We must work hard in our prayer closet and then take the gospel to the world. Paul says we need to be wise in how we act towards outsiders. What does he mean there? Well, we'll we'll unpack that more starting next week about what it means to be a part of a covenant community, what it means to be a part of the church and a believer versus an unbeliever. So he's speaking about those who are outside of the church, but he says we need to make the best use of the time. Um, For those of us who are younger, I can't use myself in that anymore. For those of you who are younger, uh, perhaps that means making the best use of the time means, you know, setting aside a year or two to learn a language um, before you have kids, before you get wrapped up in, in life and careers, and then maybe visiting another country to consider what is God doing in that country. They haven't yet had access to the gospel. Uh, Maybe it's doing one of our Engage Global weekends. Um, Making the best use of the time means not laying in bed, binging your favorite series when you could be deepening your theological training. It it means that if we're single or widowed, we can be serving Jesus' church with maybe a little bit of that extra time we have, um, those talents, that treasure, even in those extra moments. As the church scattered, 
living in relationship to people in this greater community, we need to be prepared for these moments when God opens the door for the gospel message. We call that time management. He says, make the best use of the time. We call that time management. But then Paul adds, we need to have word management. Notice the fifth one, preach with grace. This is our final note here. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, admittedly, we're not always going to be well-received when we take the gospel to the world. People are going to have pushback. They're going to have rejection. They're going to have questions. They will even bring persecution. But Paul says that as for us, our speech should be gracious. It should be seasoned with salt. The idea of salty can um, sometimes be translated to speak with a little bit of wit or winsomeness in our speech. Uh, William Barclay says this. He says, here is an interesting injunction. It is all too true that Christianity in the minds of many is connected with a kind of sanctimonious dullness and an outlook in which laughter is almost a heresy. The Christian must commend his message with the charm and the wit which were in Jesus himself. But the more important thing I want you to note here is that we must speak. He says, let your speech. That means we have to talk. We have to communicate not just a good example. We need to communicate words. <clears throat> Faith does not come by seeing only. It comes by hearing. And so just because people see that you're living what you believe, that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll come to Christ. Our lifestyle backs up the fact that what we're saying is true. But we have to say something, in other words, um, to proclaim. And so as missional participants... We are those in the church who pray, who send, and who stay. But there are many who God has also called to go. And just because we stay, pray, and send doesn't mean we're off the hook from sharing the gospel or being a witness. We may not be those right now who are listening to this who venture out in faith cross-culturally to another language, people, group, or nation. There may be some of us here, um, but... <clears throat> We are all involved in that process. So we aren't just to set up social gospel humanitarian aid that's void of gospel presentation. We must speak. We must graciously, seasoned with salt, speak. And the world has to hear the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so I pray that as Paul spoke of the supremacy of Christ, the lordship of Jesus to the church in Colossae, that we would get this, that we would understand this, that it would radically shape uh, not only our relationships, our identity, it would also impact our reach as we disciple the nations. So as we close, I'm going to invite our worship team forward, and we're going to close this part of our service with song. And in a minute, we're going to take communion together. Um, just to prepare you for that, we have elements in the back of the room. Um, so I'd love for us, starting in the back later, I'll give you direction, from the back leading to the front, um, we'll go row by row and just grab the elements. They're, they're sealed, pre-filled. You grab the kind of both, you know, one element, and it'll have the juice and the bread. But Paul ends his letter in verse 18 with this. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Grace. The last word of the book of Colossians is the word grace. The last words of Jesus in our Bibles at the end of Revelation 22 is grace. One person says that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's for you. It's for me. And it's for the many hundreds, perhaps thousands of people that our church can impact with the gospel, both here and to the ends of the earth. I want to close the sermon with a story of a woman by the name of Cornelia Dahlenberg. She was a nurse. And one day, many years ago, she walked down a street in Chicago and she stopped by a church door and she noticed the bulletin on the outside of the church door and she read about a missionary nurse that was coming to speak that weekend. She also noticed the name Samuel Zwamer, famous missionary to Arabia. Well, she was delighted to see that name because she had seen the work of this missionary in Arabia. And she said, this must not be an accident. So she came to the church meeting and she felt God's call to service in Oman. Afterwards, she spoke of it to her denomination's board of missions. 
Well, she was amazed when a few weeks later she was officially accepted for service in the Middle East after a period of special training. The board suggested that she immediately enroll for further training at the Hartford Seminary School of Missions. And after reaching her assigned post in Musket, Oman, I actually flew through Musket uh, a few months ago, Cornelia Dahlenberg visited a cemetery and she gazed upon the graves of missionaries who had gone before her. And she remembered Dr. Zwamer's words. He said, the evangelization of the Muslim world is no light phrase. It is a deep life's purpose, a work of faith, a labor of love, and a patience of hope. And so she prayed in that cemetery, equip me, Lord. Later in life, she wrote these words, and we'll close with these. She said, I hope that missions would attract many good men and women, but I know that a few is all that it will take. A life set on fire by the Lord is an awesome thing. It sends out sparks. The sparks light other fires. The the fires can sweep through entire nations. And we would pray alongside this great woman of faith, light more fires, Lord. As we consider our place, your place, it's not the work of the pastor or that church or that mission organization. As you and I consider my place, your place this morning, in the great task unfinished, we realize that every Christ follower is a participant in discipling the nations. People matter. Every Christian here is needed. Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of his church, and he's Lord of every knee that will bow and every tongue that will confess his supremacy. And until that day, may we redeem the time. May we be faithful to fulfill the ministry God has given us, both individually and corporately at Shoreline. And may we pray steadfastly with thankful vigilance as we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in our gospel witness. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Christ. We come behold the wondrous mystery of who Jesus is sent from heaven to earth. And we, this morning, we come to the cross grateful, thankful for the finished work of Christ. We thank you that it was in the wisdom of the Father to send the Son to bear our sin, to rise again triumphantly, to ascend, and then one day to come again and vanquish his enemies. And Lord, we're in that already but not yet time. Help us to redeem it, Lord. Help us to be a witness. Help us not to be fired up with some appeal this morning, but to be empowered by the Spirit of God to fulfill the ministry that you've given us. So Lord, we ask to that end that we would be faithful, that we would be fruitful, and that we would abide and cling to you in the midst of very dark days. Lord, help us to be light and salt in this community to the ends of the earth. And we love you and we thank you. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name.